Welcome to Reformations, the podcast of the Meter Center for Calvin Studies. Today we are welcoming Professor Laura Smith. And Laura is the Reverend Dr. Laura Smith. <laughs> she is Professor of Theology at Calvin University in Grand Rapids. She's been teaching there since 1999. She's also the Assistant Pastor of Good Shepherd Presbyterian Church, ECO, in Grand Rapids. Do we say ECO or do we say ECO? We usually say ECO because ECO, right. ECO is not, it's not an abbreviation. ECO. Um, and she's also ordained as Minister in the, of the Word in both ECO, which is a covenant order of evangelical Presbyterians, and in the Christian Reformed Church in North America. Laura, I'm so pleased you agreed to sit down with me today. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. I am always pleased to talk with you, Corinne. Wonderful. So let's just um, talk first about your scholarly interests. I know mm -hmm. you've had a long-standing interest in medieval theology and the medieval thinkers in general. Can you talk a little bit about how that interest came about? That's a good question because it wasn't obvious at all that I was going to be a medievalist. Uh, nothing in my education suggested that I would be a medievalist. Back in the day when I was a student at then Calvin College and at Calvin Seminary, we typically ignored the Middle Ages. We jumped from Augustine to Calvin. Mm -hmm. And so I had never really read any medieval theology when I finally went to graduate school. And more than that, I had been taught that it was mostly pretty corrupted, mm -hmm. that, that there was a big problem with most medieval theology because this Neoplatonic Hellenistic tradition had polluted the stream of pure, wonderful theology. Now, now I know, of course, that that theory came from someone who believed that the, uh, the Bible itself was corrupted by the Neoplatonic Hellenist tradition. And if you want to remove all those ideas, you have to take them out of the New Testament. Mm -hmm. But that was never told to me. So we had a sort of watered down vision of this, but I, I bought it, you know, I believed all these things. But at the same time that I was being taught uh, this really disdainful view of the Middle Ages, and I should say that is certainly not what we teach at Calvin University today, but, <laughs> but when I was being taught this, uh, my imagination was being trained in a different direction. Mm -hmm. So when I was a very small child, the first book I remember reading for myself as mm -hmm. a chapter book, the first book to completely capture my imagination was The Silver Chair by okay. C.S. Lewis. Yes. And if there is a Neoplatonic book that C.S. Lewis ever wrote mm -hmm. for children, certainly it is The Silver Chair where they go down into a cave and mm -hmm. debate the reality of the world outside. Mm -hmm. And from then on, Lewis was very important in the forming of my imagination. So when I went to graduate school, I, I didn't actually go to be a medievalist, but I went because I had been a pastor for some years at that point and was intrigued by the intersection of a sort of aesthetic appetite for the beautiful and the appetite for God and how those things seem to fit together in my congregation. Sure. And I wanted to learn more how to, to speak into that. Mm -hmm. uh, so I came looking for people who could help me think about beauty and faith together. Mm -hmm. And I started to notice that the people who did that for me, people like Louis, uh, Jacques Maritain, uh, Hansers von Balthasar were all medievalists. Mm -hmm. And so I started reading some of the medieval tradition and, and said to myself, but this is true. Mm -hmm. um, it's not that any medieval theologian says only true things. That's not true of any theologian. But I found um, medieval theology to be so hospitable for me 
compared to the much more modern theology that I was being handed by fellow pastors, you know, none of which seemed to speak to my heart at all. Right. And this medieval tradition really did. Mm-hmm. Um, so I felt at home in it almost immediately. And, and it's been a very good fit for me. I'm grateful that I get to teach medieval theology here at Calvin. Absolutely, because on the face of it, it's not the first area of specialty you'd think of in a Reformed institution, that someone would specialize in medieval theology. But in fact, we have a medieval studies minor at Calvin, which is uh, a real gift, I think. Mm -hmm. And I get to teach a 200-level class that satisfies core in ancient and medieval theology. We go through um, pretty much 100 years every week, Mm -hmm. (laughs) starting with the early church and and leading right up to the Reformation. And then there's another 200-level class that picks up at the Reformation and comes to the present day. I think our students on the whole are more interested in the more modern, but there, sure. are, there are still plenty of students who want to know about the early church and want to know about the Middle Ages. And it fills in a gap, which I think is still present in most people's thinking, where you leap from the early church to the Reformation exactly, without a great sense of anything that may have happened in between times right. and a lot of the deep thinking that went on. Yeah. And that's such a distortion, I think. It's, mm-hmm. it's a distortion of our tradition as Reformed Uh, Christians as well, because Mm -hmm. Calvin was in fact quite aware of that medieval tradition, Mm -hmm. and he was not throwing all of it away. Correct. Um, I've I've been grateful to learn that more Mm -hmm. um, through colleagues here at Calvin since I came here to to see just how much continuity there really is. Yes. Especially for me, I my primary work is with Bonaventure, Mm -hmm. uh, a 13th century theologian who is known as the greatest Augustinian of the 13th century. Mm -hmm. And Calvin, of course, just wants to go back to Augustine and and preserve the Augustinian tradition. Bonaventure and Calvin have a great deal in common. Yeah, it's been entertaining for me to find a Franciscan priest who works on Calvin, who's a friend of mine, Mm -hmm. and I, as a Calvinist, work (laughs) on this Franciscan priest uh, from the 13th century. And so we we enjoy comparing notes. I'm sure. I think that would be a great conversation. So tell me a bit more about your project this summer. I know you have a McGregor Fellowship, and for those who aren't aware of this, the McGregor program at Calvin allows undergraduates to work with faculty on specific research projects over the summer months. So tell us about your McGregor project. Well, it's a very exciting project for me. I've, I've always wanted to write the book I'm working on now. I thought I would probably wait and do it in retirement, but I'm, I'm pleased I'm doing it now. It's, this is a much smarter thing. Mm-hmm. I, I should have seen that long ago. It's an introductory textbook for uh, theology, but through the lens of beauty, okay. which is how I teach my intro theology textbook or my intro theology class, and there is no textbook that does this. There's certainly no textbook that does this from a Reformed perspective. Mm -hmm. So to be broadly Reformed while also acknowledging the great ecumenical tradition and do all of that through this uh, lens of beauty, that's, that's my goal in teaching. And I think it's a goal that other faculty and other institutions could very well share. But to do this, it, it's just so helpful to have a student who is a step, well, several steps actually, ahead of my intro-level students, but still mm-hmm. remembers what that's like. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, says in one of his um, little essays of advice for people about reading and studying old books, um, 
and how to learn to read and how to learn to understand. He says, sometimes your professor can't actually help you with your questions Mm -hmm. because it's been such a long time since your professor had that moment of confusion. Find a student who's a little bit ahead of you who will say, oh, I remember thinking that too. That's because you don't know the meaning of this word. And, you know, I've, I have no idea that they don't know the meaning of that mm-hmm. word often, mm-hmm. but, but another student realizes, oh, you completely misunderstood the question in this way. So she's really helpful for me, for me in that way. And she's just also a very fine researcher. Mm-hmm. At the beginning of the summer, um, I said to her, instead of, because we're trying to cover all of theology in eight weeks, yeah. <laughs> uh, instead of every week you kind of start from scratch and try to find interesting ideas about this, why don't we decide on two theologians that you will really learn? Yep. And so you'll know those two people and those two voices and will speak into this project. And she picked Gregory of Nyssa, mm-hmm. who's a fourth century Cappadocian wonderful theologian, very beautiful theology, and Jonathan Edwards, mm-hmm. the great Reformed theologian from the United States, the, sure. the greatest theologian the United States has ever produced. And Jonathan Edwards is obsessed with beauty. Mm-hmm. So she is really mastering these two theologians. She will know what they have to say about all major theological topics by the time we finish. So I think she's getting quite a bit out of this project, and I'm getting a lot. I mean, it sounds fantastic. So is the is the book going to be chronological or thematic or both? Thematic. Okay, thematic. thematic. Right. Yes. So it's it's a systematic theology class. Mm-hmm. So we'll start with some uh, prolegomena, mm-hmm. questions of method and what is theology and what are our sources and how do we understand the work of the Holy Spirit in this process and then who is God and what is the creation and how does it all fall apart and okay. and then move to the work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit in the church and then in terms of the time period covered, is from the early church to... Well, I'm not, a, I confess, a huge fan of a lot of contemporary theology, um, but I certainly do use some 20th century theologians. Mm-hmm. Um, Hansers von Balthasar and, um, and Lewis make uh, frequent appearances. Other yep. theologians who, who work with beauty. Yep. There are some contemporary theologians who who also care about beauty. Like Daryl Hart or something uh, Yeah, like Daryl Hart, yeah. actually. Mm-hmm. I was just looking at a book by Daryl Hart over the weekend. Uh, so, yes, I, I'm interested in other people who take that approach. Mm-hmm. But I'm not necessarily trying to cover the whole waterfront historically. No. Um, I, I do use quite a bit of Calvin. Yep. Uh, I think Calvin is sometimes, from my vantage point, is sometimes misread as if he were really an Enlightenment thinker. Mm -hmm. And I think he's a pre-Enlightenment thinker. I think the world's still pretty enchanted for John Calvin. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I think that he has more in common with my medieval folks than he does with some of the people who come after. I think that's, that's wonderful, and it sounds like an amazing project. I hope that this summer project, you know, that you can really make good progress I, on it. I hope so. I, I'm hoping to have enough of it written by fall that my students this fall will be reading portions of it in my intro class. That would be terrific. Yeah, Absolutely. so I can get some good feedback from them. So you teach um, at the intro level, you teach at the upper level, and I know in uh, many of your classes, which are theology classes, you sometimes have projects for the students where they have to pick a theologian. Tell us a little bit about these projects and what you really want the students to get out of this. Well, I have found that having students do a a research paper is very valuable. Mm -hmm. It's hard for them, especially Mm -hmm. at the 100 level. Most of them have never written a paper that's 10 pages long. It seems daunting. But making them do it 
at the 100 level just makes everything easier when they get to 200 and 300 level classes. And um, most majors, I think they're going to have to do more and more writing as they go. One of the things that we're pleased with ourselves, are pleased with ourselves for in the religion department is that we do produce better writing. Yes. Uh, we watch our students improve yep. over the course of their, their Calvin education. And I think that is one of the best skills we can give to students. So insisting on a research paper is something I've just been unwilling to give up. Mm -hmm. It's time consuming for them and for me, but I think it's a, a big investment. What they like to do when they write a research paper is pick a topic and then kind of pull randomly from sources that support what they already think and, and write that up. But that's not what I want them to learn. What I'm really hoping will happen for them is that when they finish intro theology, there will be at least one theologian mm -hmm. that they know reasonably well, mm -hmm. enough not so that they know all topics with this theologian. This, this is a really introductory level class, but some years down the road, when they're in church, say, and mm -hmm. they're having a theological debate about something, or the pastor says something that confuses them, and mm -hmm. they say, I really want to understand that idea. What does the descent into hell mean anyway? Sure. You know, these theological questions occur throughout your life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, your first year of college is not always the moment when you're prepared to hear the answer, but that question will come back. And I want that student to say, uh, Herman Bovink. I did a paper on Herman Bovink. Maybe he can help me. Or yep. John Calvin. Maybe yep. Calvin can help me. Yep. So I do spend quite a bit of time talking to them about which theologian they want to work with. Mm -hmm. It's also a way for students from all different traditions to work in their own tradition. Right. So I get a lot of papers on John Wesley. Right. Um, I get a lot of papers on people who are not at all in the Reformed tradition. Mm -hmm. um, we have a growing number of Catholic students at Calvin sure. University, and I'm grateful that they can spend their time on Thomas Aquinas. Absolutely. You know? And they're grateful too. Or, or I had several papers on Rahner this past year. So right. just giving students the permission to mm -hmm. go to any part of the Christian tradition mm -hmm. and investigate one question. Mm -hmm. I think it's good for them. So a number of students have come to the Meter Center because they're working on John Calvin. Yes. Um, do you think they come with preconceptions or just lack of knowledge about Calvin? I think they probably do have some preconceptions, although the, the ones who choose Calvin maybe have fewer than most, mm -hmm. right? Uh, Calvin doesn't always have such a cheerful reputation mm -hmm. in contemporary thinking, which is unfortunate, I think. His theology is so elegant mm -hmm. and, and lovely. I, I do think at least some of the students pick Calvin precisely because I make a bit of a pitch for the fact that the Meter Center staff yes. will assist you. Yes. And they want assistance. And yes. so they, they know that the Meter Center is such a rich resource mm -hmm. um, that... They should take advantage of it. And many of them also say, I'm graduating from Calvin. Yes. Maybe I should know who Calvin actually was. Absolutely. Maybe I should know something he really said. Absolutely. Um, as you can look at the, the university now, Calvin University, moving forward, what place do you think there is for reformed theology, the place of John Calvin, as we become a university and perhaps broaden our appeal to a wider audience. Do you think, what's the, what's the place of reformed thinking, reformed, that's a big question, but do you have any, any thoughts on that? I do. I have 
quite a few thoughts on that. Um, I don't think being a university should in any way weaken our theological core. Mm -hmm. Certainly, most of the great universities in the world have had religious uh, identity at their core uh, throughout history. So there's no reason at all why our commitment to the Reformed tradition should get less. In fact, my hope is that it will get much more robust, Mm -hmm. precisely because this expansion to being a university opens us up to the global Reformed community. And John Calvin doesn't just speak to people in North America, um, but he is owned and claimed by Presbyterians and Reformed people all around the world. Mm Mm-hmm. I remember sitting at an ecumenical gathering next to a, um, a delegate. It was a, a gathering of the World Communion of Reformed Churches, but kind of a small one dealing with some specific questions. And the man next to me was from the Reformed Church in Japan. And he was so insistent that we were not keeping within the bounds of the Westminster Standards. And uh-huh. he was really <laughs> claiming that tradition with great vigor. And I think sometimes here we, at Calvin, we assume that that that's colonialistic or something that the other traditions, other parts of the world don't really want to hear about the reformed tradition. Mm -hmm. That has not been my experience at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think that it could become more robust. My hope is that it will also be more theologically and confessionally robust. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we can water down the reformed tradition to every square inch. Right. And you know, that's a nice thing. Cultural engagement is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Most Christian traditions have some theory of cultural engagement that is hardly unique yes. to the Reformed tradition. So claiming that as our Reformed identity is a pretty watered-down version. And one of the things I've done in all my 20 years at Calvin is tried to get my colleagues to engage with our confessional tradition on other things, like the doctrine of God, right. or what does the Reformed tradition say about the Holy Spirit? Sure. I think if I ever do another one of those, mm-hmm. and I, I hope I will, uh, those faculty discussions, it will be about the sacraments. Right. Because really, the Reformed sacramental understanding is a distinctive mark of the tradition. Yes. And I think it has implications for many, many areas of life. Yes. And I know I've been in contact with other colleagues who are concerned that particularly uh, the Reformed understanding of the Lord's Supper is eroding, mm-hmm. and we're getting into very much into basically a flat memorialism. Um, yeah, that concerns any, me too. Any presence of the Holy Spirit right. in that sacrament, right? Um, and when I teach uh, the the theology of the sacraments in the intro class, and I kind of lay out the different traditions on the board and say, "This is what Reformed people believe." Mm-hmm. I always have Reformed students who say, "Why has no one ever told me that? Yes, uh, why is this?" only being revealed to me now. Yes. Uh, and typically they're very excited about yep. it. Yep. And they don't want flat memorialism. So. They want something more than that. And that's I think that's, right. that would revive, I think, the practice of the Lord's Supper in many of our worshiping communities I as think well. so too. Absolutely. I do see more and more interest in, in uh, a more serious uh, understanding of the the Lord's Supper, and I see more communities that want to celebrate more often, even yes. weekly. So I think there's a hunger for it, mm-hmm. and, and it would be nice if we could be at the forefront of uh, meeting that hunger instead of kind of falling behind and not really knowing what to say. Yes. So, so as we move to a university, what role would the Meter Center, do you think, have as one of the various centers and institutes at the university? 
as the special collection, as the focal point for Calvin studies, what role could you see us playing as we move into this new realm of being a university? Well, I hope it will expand. Mm-hmm. Uh, I certainly think that um, universities that I have visited that have research centers tend to draw people from all around the world, and the mm-hmm. Meter Center already does that. Mm-hmm. So it seems to me that since one of the major uh, imp- one <laughs> uh, how to say this one of the major reasons for this move to being a university is to become more global. Yes then the Meter Center should become more central to that project. This is already one of the places on campus that draws people from all over. Mm -hmm. Um, I believe we've even had scholars from Geneva who come to Grand Rapids (laughs) to study Calvin because we have such a great collection. And I I think we are too little known. Yep, and I think hopefully we can work to... The podcast is part of this, this way of reaching out to a broader audience and making ourselves perhaps better known. Right. Uh, I think that's all to the good. Well, I'm not a Calvin scholar. I I wouldn't claim to be, but I'm very grateful for the Meter Center. Thank you, Laura. Thank you for this time together. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you.